This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, we go back to 2014 for an archive interview with author and activist Cory Doctorow about his book, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. Then PW Executive Editor Jonathan Segura previews the PW Spring Announcements issue. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. This is a bad time of year to bring out a book. Nobody <laughs> wants to do it. Um, all the all the holiday shopping has already been yep. done. Yeah, we're well into Hanukkah. Christmas is right around the corner. And uh, pretty much sales are going to be slow. Yeah. So um, no surprise that there's only a couple of debuts on the hardcover fiction list. Number one, we have Year One by Nora Roberts. She can have a book out anytime and uh, people will buy it. So uh, I think they they decided that she was pretty much uh, proof against the uh, the December doldrums. We say this is an entertaining book. It's the first of a trilogy, and it concerns a magical blight that wipes out most of humankind and leaves some survivors with otherworldly powers. And uh, we say that Roberts absolutely knows how to write a page turner, though her prose often relies on repetitive exposition and her attempts at depicting racial diversity can be a little cringeworthy. Mm. Uh, Characters are pretty much stock good or evil, but readers who are after a well-told apocalyptic story with magical touches will be satisfied. They're printing a million copies of this. They will sell them all. Not not a problem. Yeah, sold 38,000 copies right out the gate in a very, very slow time for book sales. So I think she'll do just fine. Down at number 15, uh, we have uh, James Rollins's The Demon Crown, a Sigma Force novel. We give this a star, but we say that readers with insect phobias may want to avoid it. It is the 13th book in the Sigma Force series. And uh, it's set in 1903 when Alexander Graham Bell is on a mission to Italy to retrieve the bones of the man who founded the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, But along with the skeleton, Bell finds a pumpkin-sized chunk of amber containing a small dinosaur with a tiny crown of bones. Uh, We say that the chapters written from the point of view of giant killer wasps are particularly bone-chilling. But again, if you don't like bugs... Don't read this oh, book. Oh, wow. And that's what we've got. That Just those two new books on the hardcover fiction list. Well, we have in nonfiction, uh, at number three, we have a book called Let Trump Be Trump, The Inside Story of His Rise to the Presidency by Corey Lewandowski and David Bossy. Uh, this is at number three. And uh, Lewandowski is uh, Trump's campaign manager. And Bossy is a, just a political writer. And uh, he was famous for Citizens United Supreme Court case. And this is basically what they say is a behind the scenes look at how President Trump became president. So that's at number three. At 
Number five, uh, we have a cookbook, How Not to Die Cookbook, 100 Recipes to Help Prevent and Reverse Disease by Michael Grieger. He's the uh, physician behind uh, the website, uh, nutritionfacts.org, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, How Not to Die. And then uh, going down to number 14, we have another cookbook. So this is the Whole30 Fast and Easy Cookbook, 150 Simply Delicious Everyday Recipes for Your Whole30 Diet. This is uh, Melissa Hartwig, who created the Whole30 program. And here we say this is a cookbook in which dieters eliminate certain foods such as legumes, sugar, and wheat for 30 days. And here she offers lots of meal options. Uh, Readers interested in preparing and serving uh, healthier meals that come together quickly are sure to appreciate this thoughtful collection. And finally, at number 24, we have Natural Disaster. I cover them. I and one by Ginger Z. Uh, she's ABC uh, News chief meteorologist, and here she talks about growing up in a small town uh, in. Michigan, and how she developed uh, an obsession with weather as a young girl. We don't have a review of this, but she talks about um, her life as a meteorologist and what weather means to her, what I'm assuming. And that's all we have on the nonfiction list. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, an archive interview with tech activist Corey Doctorow. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Isabel Allende, and my book is In the Midst of Winter, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Cory Doctor on the line, all the way from London. His new book is Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. Hi, Cory. Hi there. So, information wants to be free was a very popular saying in the early days of the Internet. What's changed over the past 20 years? Well, I don't think the the wisdom of the saying has changed. You know, it was said by Stuart Brand at the first Hackers Conference in an onstage discussion with Steve Wozniak, one of the founders of Apple. And Brand said, information wants to be free, but information wants to be expensive. And he was kind of giving us a koan about the Internet, that on the one hand, the more IT knowledge there is and the faster and better our computers get, the harder it is to control the copying and dissemination of information. But paradoxically, as the um, amount of IT knowledge and IT in the field grows, the value of any given piece of information is apt to go up. So that was a that was a wonderful thing and a very clever thing for Stuart to have said. The problem is that um, nobody actually knows that context. And so what they think is that when people argue about, say, whether or not it should be legal to have anything that you want removed from the internet just by claiming it infringes copyright, that the reason you care about this stuff is because you want to make sure that information is free. And, you know, I've devoted about 10 plus years of my life to arguing about information policy and being an activist on information policy. And I've never once gotten out of bed because I wanted to make sure that information had its destiny fulfilled. I feel because, you know, we live in an information age where everything we do is mediated by the internet. And so if people are going to be free, they need a free, fair and open information infrastructure. Okay, so um, in your book, you talk about Doctoro's three laws. Take us, take us through those. 
Sure. It, it actually started at the 2008 Tools of Change conference in New York, a publishing conference that O'Reilly put on. And and oftentimes, I um, when I speak uh, in the U.S., especially the first day I get there, my talks are a little bit hallucinogenic because I spent the whole night with horrible jet lag sort of up in my hotel room working on my speech. And this was no exception. I'd come up with uh, Dr. O's first law or Dr. O's law in the middle of the night, I grandiosely called it. And it's anytime someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you, and won't give you the key, that lock isn't there for your benefit. And many companies and many individuals in the creative industries have found themselves being wooed by technology companies like Amazon and Apple uh, and Google with claims that they can give them digital rights management technology that will control piracy. And for many companies, it's actually become an article of faith that if you don't allow, if you uh, don't require your works to go out with digital rights management, they're just going to end up all over the internet immediately and um, you'll have no control over them. The technical reality has been that um, all digital rights management systems are broken right away, and everything that was ever DRM released is available as a free download, regardless. But um, that's not to say that DRM doesn't do something. It does something incredibly important, which is that it transfers negotiating power from the hands of the uh, of the investors in creative works and the publishers and the studios and the labels into the hands of the companies that make and sell DRM. Because the law, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, says that only these companies, only the companies that make the DRM, can authorize the removal of that DRM. And what that means is that if you're Hachette, and Hachette is the, easily the most um, emphatic user of DRM in the, in the, among the big five, and all of your books have been locked up with DRM, when you have a dispute with Amazon and you say, well, if you don't want to sell our books, we're going to um, take our business elsewhere and we'll sell our books somewhere else, Amazon can say, that's fine, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out, because you can't authorize your customers to unlock all of your books that they bought from us and take them with you to somewhere like Apple or to Google, um, you've effectively transferred control over those customers to us. So that's the first rule, that, that if someone um, locks something up and then won't give you the key, that lock isn't there for your benefit. And so after Tools of Change, I went out to lunch with my agent, which is what writers do in New York. They get free lunches. And um, my agent, uh, Russ Galen, um, was the Arthur C. Clarke agent. Now he's the estates agent. And when I told him I'd come up with a law, he said, you know, if there's one thing I learned from Arthur, it's that you need to have three laws. So I came up with two more. And the second law is that... Um, Although being famous won't automatically make you rich, no one will give you money unless they've heard of your books. So the way that authors and other creative people make money is by people knowing that their works exist and going out and, and, and paying for them. Not everybody who downloads them pays for them, but nobody will pay for them or download them unless they've heard of them. And the way that that payment and that discovery takes place these days is over the Internet. It's, uh, it's, it's through services like Google and services like PayPal and services like Kickstarter. And um, those uh, online services that either can complement traditional publishing or act as an alternative to it, you know, either you're, you're someone like me who uses the internet to help sell books through a publisher like Macmillan, or maybe you're someone like Hugh Howey who uh, made a success of himself 
uh, independently without having to deal with a publisher and then negotiated a much better deal from Simon & Schuster because they needed him more than, than he needed them. Or you might be someone like Amanda Palmer who became very successful through the label system and then went out on her own and, and pieced together this uh, business for herself using the, um, the, uh, the public internet infrastructure. And it doesn't matter which of those deals you're in, the existence of the internet gets the creative class a better deal from the investor class, from the publishers and the studios and the labels, because the internet represents a kind of competitor of last resort. The worst deal that a publisher or a label or a studio can offer you has to be better than the best deal you think you can piece together for yourself out of um, uh, bits and pieces lying around on the internet. Whether or not you end up going indie, the existence of successful indies puts the floor on your negotiations with your labels and studios. And yet, the um, uh, uh, creative people, the, the, the sort of labor in this triangle, have been endorsing programs that make it much harder to start new uh, online businesses and provide that kind of competition we need that makes sure that we've always got someone to go to who isn't our publishers. So, you know, the Authors Guild, for example, told Google that they could only index books and make them searchable if they gave the Authors Guild $70 million and said that nobody else would get that deal after Google. And what they were effectively setting up was a system where only Google could uh, index books and make books discoverable, which, you know, for Google, $70 million is what they've got lying around between the sofa cushions. It was an incredible deal. Um, or, you know, the movie industry pressured YouTube into adding Content Guard, which is their content ID, which is their multi-hundred million dollar system for automatically identifying uh, infringing material and blocking it when it goes up on YouTube. And, you know, I think they felt like that was a great idea, but what it means is that no one is ever going to be able to start a competitor to YouTube unless it's just as big as Google is already. So the new boss is always going to be the same as the old boss. And we already see that happening. Like, um, Google started a competition a service to uh, to um, Spotify, a streaming music service, and they gathered the four big labels in a room and negotiated the terms on which they would license their music for the streaming service. And then they went to all the indie labels and said, "You will take the terms that your biggest competitors have organized, the, the term the terms that the uh, majors agreed to, or you are no longer allowed to use YouTube to promote your music." And so they effectively. Uh, by making it hard to have competition for YouTube, have made YouTube part of the record industry instead of an alternative to it. So that's the second law. So I, I'm I'm just I'm going to take a step back, uh, and I want to go back actually sure. to the obscurity um, and and piracy question because that's something that I hear authors talk about a lot. Um, mm -hmm. How how do you respond to to these authors who are genuinely concerned that piracy is going to cut into their sales? I mean, authors don't make a lot of money, so you know, when when someone is really counting every sale, every penny that comes through on the royalty statement, um, how do you how do you reassure them that that your law is in fact a law and not just a bit of wishful thinking? Well, so I, I don't say that piracy doesn't cut into sales. It might cut into sales. I, I think for some authors it does, and for some authors it doesn't. Actually, all the empirical research suggests that. Um, for most authors, it's a wash. For very successful authors, it's a small loss. And for authors who are just starting out, it's a small gain. That, that basically, it's a, it's a kind of progressive taxation. But I think that the, the real issue is that all of the stuff that we've tried to prevent piracy has completely failed. So um, no one actually 
actually has a way to to prevent piracy. It's not like copying is ever going to get harder. You know, your great grandchildren will marvel at how hard copying was in 2014. And so, um, if you're going to treat the internet as a fact instead of as a problem, and try to figure out how to make money from it instead of just stamping your foot in frustration about it, your concern shouldn't be to make sure that everybody who pays reads, uh, or everybody who reads pays rather, but to ensure that everyone who is paying that as much of that money as possible is landing in your pocket. And that's contingent on your deal with your publisher, who, after all, take the money in on your behalf from the retailers. And so what we want is a system where the first people in line to get paid when, when stuff is bought are the, or, or paid for through other means like advertising or whatever, um, that the first people to get paid are us, the creators. The second are the publishers who invested in us. And the third are the tech companies. And our publishers, through their lobbying and general strategic incompetence, as well as the rest of the entertainment industry, have engineered a system where it's just the reverse. First, they handed the keys to the kingdom to the uh, tech companies by letting them use proprietary digital rights management. And then they conned up us into supporting them in their efforts to make it harder to start competitors to them so that they can command these crazy deals, right? Like, um, if you're uh, uh, an author these days, your publisher, chances are, is going to ask not just for your U.S. rights, but for your global English rights, increasingly for your global translation rights, um, and increasingly things like audiobook and uh, and um, uh, graphic novel adaptation rights. And so, you know, if you want to make sure that you get as much of the money as is possible, um, you want to you want to make sure that there's competition when you and your publisher sit down to negotiate that they aren't able to sort of claw in all of the rights and and uh, to have you know whatever accounting practices seem nice at the time uh, <laughs> and to set whatever royalty they feel like you want them to be on the lookout for you walking out the door and walking into the door of another company that might be offering you a better deal and when there's five publishers and four record labels and five movie studios competition's pretty thin on the ground so you you're obviously you've walked the talk um, you've got some indie publishing under your belt and you've also done some books with traditional publishers, um, just dis- mm-hmm. despite being clearly concerned about their ability to do what it is that they're supposed to do. Um, how, how has that worked out for you? Do you find that this works in practice? Well, sure. I mean, you know, I don't have a, a, a time machine, so I can't go back and re-release the same books under different circumstances and compare the results. So maybe I've passed on a fortune that would make Croesus blush uh, by by releasing my books under Creative Commons licenses. But, you know, I've got a book on the New York Times bestseller list right now uh, that came out in October. I have another book that comes out, uh, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, in a week that has already sold out its initial print run two weeks before the release release date on pre-orders and they're they're going back to the press. So it seems to me that like if if one way to gauge how well an author is doing is you say well publishers for whatever mistakes they make are not terrible by and large at guessing how many books you're likely to sell. And so when you sell more books than the publisher expects you to sell that probably means you're doing pretty well. And so consistently, my books sell out their first print runs and many subsequent print runs. And I think that's a pretty good sign. You know, um, I've had bestsellers for the last two or three books and uh, um, and many bestsellers and 
publish publications in many countries and repeat publications in many countries where they bought the foreign rights and then they bought the foreign rights to the next book because the last one did well. So all of those things suggest to me that it's doing well. But again, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that there isn't some possibility that this is that this is all totally wrong and that if I were uh, if I were kind of bent on terrorizing people into paying me instead of charming them into it, that I mightn't be richer. I don't think I'd sleep better, though. Hmm. So, so we've talked about uh, the digital locks. We've talked about piracy and obscurity. And the third uh, of the uh, doctoral laws is on copyright. What's your take on it? Well, it's on it's on the idea that information doesn't want to be free. That that. Um, for all that many of us are full-time artists, we're even more full-time human beings. And we are human beings in the 21st century where the internet has become the nervous system of our society, where everything we do involves the internet and uh, everything we're going to do tomorrow will require it. And in the name of protecting our livelihoods, we have horribly compromised uh, the internet's integrity. Like any information can be made to disappear from the internet by accusing it of copyright infringement without an adversarial judicial process without a court order, without any kind of, of uh, kind of checks and balances or due process, the, the stuff that we would expect if someone were going to go into a bookstore and start pulling books off the shelves and sticking them in a dumpster, none of that stuff applies to the internet, even though there are a hell of a lot more people who rely on the internet for information than any bookstore. And so, you know, by allowing that to be done in our name, we have paved the way for everyone from the Church of Scientology to the King of Thailand to British neo-Nazis abusing the takedown process in our, that was set up in our name to censor the internet. And, you know, um, uh, we've, we've even had uh, in our name things uh, attempt to go further. So Viacom uh, asked the Supreme Court to hold, first of all, that Google should hire lawyers to review 100 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute uh, before allowing it to go live, which, you know, on the one hand, would have made it impossible for independent creators to publish their work because they would have had to pass those costs on and we don't have the money for it. But on the other hand, at 100 hours of video every minute, almost everything there isn't being made by independent independent creators. It's everything else. It's the entire communicative capacity of the planet that we were willing to shelve in the name of making sure that people didn't watch TV on the wrong day. Um, and, uh, and, and beyond that, they also said that um, any service that allows people to upload material and flag it as private so that it can't be seen by Viacom is abetting piracy and should be held partially liable for that piracy. Because um, if they can't see whether or not you're pirating, then you should be presumed to be pirating. And again, like the internet is not a video on demand service. The internet is where all of our communications take place. And the idea that we shouldn't be allowed to have a discussion that Viacom isn't party to, to be sure that the daily show is only being watched in the, in the order in which it was broadcast is completely bananas. Uh, and when it comes to digital locks, when it comes to DRM, it's actually much worse. The rules that protect DRM say that it's a felony to help people remove DRM. And they're so broadly written that um, giving people information about flaws in devices that use DRM is also a felony. So if you have an iPhone that um, uses DRM to make sure you only install uh, software from Apple, telling you if there's a bug in your iPhone that would help you uh, install software from someone else, uh, including pirated software, is a felony, even though that flaw might also expose you 
to horrible uh, liability in the form of um, uh, people being able to silently take over the camera or the microphone. You know, remember, your, your phone is a computer that lives in your pocket except when it's on your bedside or next to you in the toilet, and it knows who all your friends are and everything that you talk to about with them and, and also all the places that you go and how to log into your bank account and what you and your doctor are talking about this week. And so the idea that, like, as computers are creeping into the very fabric of our reality, we increasingly have houses that are automated, we have cars that are automated, you know, a plane is a flying Solaris workstation, um, that we would, we would criminalize telling people critical information about flaws in those computers is such a terrible idea. Uh, and, you know, again... 0.001% of us earn a living from the arts, and uh, even those of us who do, um, we are human beings first, and we shouldn't want to poison the digital waters this way, not because of the desires of information, but because, you know, as, as parents and as children and as brothers and sisters, you know, allowing our art to be used as the rubric for adding this kind of surveillance and control and these long-life pathogens to the Internet is just a dreadful idea. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Cory Doctorow, author of Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, and he is telling us some really intense things about the digital ecosystem and the artist's place in it. And it's been really wonderful hearing this, and I just wanted to see what your advice might be, say, for our you know, our listeners who are might be first-time mid-list authors. I mean, how, how can they maybe, I don't know, take charge of this, or how can they incorporate this into their, their own thinking? So step one, I think, is just don't let people put uh, DRM on your works. You know, fight that fight with your publisher. It may seem like it's a very abstract fight uh, at the outset, but what you're doing is you're effectively trading your publisher for Amazon, Apple, Kobo, and the other DRM companies. And those companies are not cuddly, warm, nice people. I mean, neither are the publishers. As John Scalzi says, they're not your friends, right? They're all fully paid up members of the cult of fiduciary duty. The only thing that they uh, owe allegiance to is their shareholders' profits. And if once you transfer control over your copyrights, you know, the real control, the only control that matters, which is the right of your customers to follow you from one platform to another, once you, once you give that to them, they're going to use it to extract as much of the money that your works generate as is possible. Um, and so it, it may limit your options at the outset, but it's something worth fighting really hard for. It's, it's not a little ask for a publisher to say, will you let us lock your copyrights to Amazon for all eternity, even beyond the term of copyright, because you can't remove the digital lock even from public domain works uh, once it's been applied to it without falling afoul of the law. Um, so that that's that's number one. Um, number two is to uh, uh, make your peace with the idea that um, 
there's not a future lurking out there in which uh, people will be able to uh, or you'll be able to make sure that that only people who pay read your books. Um, if you if you understand that whether or not your books are licensed under Creative Commons, people will be able to take them regardless of what you do. Then then you have to start shifting your thinking from uh, terrorizing people into compliance to charming them into it to performing public acts of generosity and trust that inspire reciprocal feeling from your audience. And, you know, the most successful artists today are the artists who do that, the artists who have that kind of relationship with their audience. And not every artist feels comfortable doing that, and I understand that. Um, But, you know, before the radio and the record came along, nobody suspected that there was a kind of a musical performer who was amazing and who would charm people and be wonderful to hear, but who didn't actually want to perform in front of an audience. Like, that was as weird as the idea of a swimmer who, who would win the gold, but who didn't like to get wet. And yet, once the radio came along, it turned out that there was a whole cohort of artists who felt that way, who who were really made to perform that way. And, you know, now, of course, those artists are the dominant form, and they say, well, what do you mean you want me to go out on tour and make a personal connection with my audience? That's not how I, uh, a respectable musician earns her living these days. So if you can find that feeling in yourself, that feeling of, of trust and generosity and personal connection, cultivate it. Uh, and if not, find a publisher who can help you cultivate it. That's the publisher's job is to take those parts of um, that are involved in, in getting your books into the hands of an audience. Um, and uh, those things that you can't do or, or that aren't cost effective or time effective for you to do and figuring out how to do them themselves. And so, you know, make that part of your negotiation with your publisher as well. How are they going to help you um, uh, make that personal connection? So speaking of getting a little personal, um, you've got a family, you're an activist, you're an author, you do lots of interviews like this, lots of speaking commitments. How do you balance all of that stuff? Do you, do you ever sleep? Uh, I don't sleep as much as I'd like, I must admit. I, uh, I had a book launch yesterday here in London, and so I, I, I was home very late. Um, turns out that when you publish graphic novels, you do a lot of events on Wednesday nights, because that's the very best night to do an event in a comic store, because it's when all the new comics come in. Um, and uh, But I, I guess the, the number one kind of one weird trick that I cultivated when I began uh, writing in earnest and selling in earnest was cleansing myself of all ceremony when I wrote. I just um, figured out how many words I needed to write every day and just wrote them even when they felt like bad words, even when they felt like, like words that weren't um, worthy words and that they were ir- irreparable words that I would never be able to make worthy. And what I realized was that in hindsight, I couldn't tell the words that I'd written on days when I felt like I was being very inspired and from the words that I wrote on days when I felt like I was just sort of phoning it in or writing, writing, you know, very mechanically. And that's that both of those conditions were related to things like my blood sugar level and my love life much more than they were related to the words I was actually writing on the page. And so having had that realization, it doesn't change the feeling that I get when I'm working, especially I'm now at the end of a 180,000 word novel and it's just kicking my ass. And it, and I sit down every day in absolute terror that I'm writing badly. And that terror is no different from the terror I felt in my 20s. Um, but uh, I sit down every day in that terror. And intellectually, I know that the terror is not well-founded. And so I work 
not because I'm not afraid, but because I've overcome the fear, because I can feel the fear and go past it. And once you can do that, um, then writing itself is not an enormously time-consuming activity. Everything else I do is what inspires me to write. And then putting the words down uh, on disc is a matter of a couple of hours every day. So this this sounds like advice that every NaNoWriMo participant needs to hear right now. It's, it, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, without wanting to get all Tony Robinson here, um, I, I do think that uh, if you pull stuff out of a drawer uh, a year or two later and you look at it, you know for a fact, if you if you think back on those times, that you wrote some of those words feeling like you were absolutely touched by the hand of God, and you wrote other words feeling like, well, these will have to do until the good words come along, and that you just can't tell the difference, that objectively there isn't, there isn't a way to know when you're writing good or writing bad, that that all has to happen in retrospect. So what do you think is going to be the next big shift in how people interact with information? Because that, that really seems to be the, the core thing that you study, I suppose, that you, that you analyze and think about and talk about. Well, I think it's going to be the metastasizing of the digital rights management idea, and this is what I'm, I'm really afraid of, that the, um, uh, the idea that we should design computers to control their owners to stop them from doing socially undesirable things, uh, and that in order to make sure that they don't change those computers, that we um, design the computers so that they hide what they're doing from their, from their owners. Uh, because, of course, if there was a program on your computer called, I can't let you do that, Dave, you would just drag it into the trash. So your computer has to be somehow designed to hide what it's doing when it stops you from saving a Netflix stream or installing third-party software that hasn't been authorized by Apple. And um, I think that that's expanding very quickly. Uh, we just saw the FBI call for backdoors on all iPhones now that Apple has announced that it's going to start encrypting phones by default. And there's not really any such thing as a backdoor. All a backdoor is, is a program that lets the FBI read what's on your phone um, that you can't delete or stop from running. And that's no difference from, uh, in, in, sort of in, in technical terms, from a program that runs on your phone that stops you from installing third-party software that you can't delete or stop from running. Uh, at the same time, we have um, this giant subprime auto lending industry that now that all the houses are gone, they're, they're trying to get people's cars. And so uh, the way that you get a subprime auto loan is you agree to allow the, the finance company to put a, uh, uh, an ignition override on your car that's tied to a GPS and a mobile cellular SIM, and if you miss a payment, your ignition is switched off remotely. And of course, YouTube is full of videos showing how to disable this stuff, right. because, you know, for the same reason you can disable DRM on the phone that's in your house, you know, the same reason we don't keep ATMs in bank robbers' living rooms, if you, if, you know, if you don't trust someone, you can't give them the equipment that um, has the lock in it, and then let them take it home with them, because they will figure out at home how to break it. And I just can't believe that Congress have Having given the entertainment industry the right to make a felon out of anyone who shows someone how to watch TV the wrong way, wouldn't be willing to do the same for anyone who um, figures out how to defeat the FBI's efforts to wiretap them, or um, uh, anyone who figures out how to uh, uh, drive their car when the finance company says they shouldn't be, and especially since there's billions of dollars on the line in the latter case and the global war on terror, which seems to be like an all-purpose catch-all 
in the former case. And so I really fear that we are right at the cusp of a, of a, a horrific metastasizement of this terrible idea that computers should control their owners. You know, And as a science fiction writer, this idea is so dumb on its face that I can't believe it has as much currency as it does. So, as a science fiction writer, um, some of your fiction is very dystopian and pessimistic, and some of it is more optimistic. How do you think we can get from here to a brighter future? So, I, I actually disparage both optimism and pessimism, because I think they're both forms of prediction. And um, I think science fiction writers who make predictions are like drug dealers who sample their own product. It never, ever ends well. Um, I, uh, you know, The thing is, if I were optimistic about technology, I would get up every morning and do everything I could to make technology a force for freedom, privacy, self-actualization, community, uh, and all of those good things, and to stop it being used for surveillance and control and for the magnification of our social differences. Um, and if I were a pessimist about technology, I would do exactly the same thing every day. So rather than pessimism or optimism, I think it's useful to think about hope. Uh, and hope is why if your ship sinks in the middle of the open water, you keep treading water, even though almost everyone who's ever been lost at sea wasn't picked up by a passing ship. Everybody who was picked up by a passing ship treaded water until one came along. And you know, um, if your ship sank and you were with a loved one who couldn't kick for herself, you would put her arms around your neck and you would kick twice as hard for both of you. And of course, the earth has everyone we love on it and everything we love on it. And so hope demands that we do everything we can to try and change the situation. I devoted my life to this kind of activism um, and that we work as hard as we can, not because there's a good chance or a bad chance of it working, but because unless we do this, there's no chance of it working. Well, let's hope we all uh, wrap our arms around each other and continue this going. So we've been talking with Corey Doctorow. You can find his book, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, in stores right now. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you, folks. It was nice talking to you. Give my regards to Broadway. <laughs> we will. We, we'll, we'll do. It's right around the corner. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely do that. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Executive Editor Jonathan Segura talks about the PW Spring Announcements issue. Stay tuned. I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of the memoir Logical Family, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Executive Editor Jonathan Segura is here to tell us all about the PW Spring Announcements issue. Hello, Johnny. Hello. It's great to be here. Hi. It's great to have you. Very nice to have you here. It's been, what, two months since I was here last? Ages. Ish. Ages Maybe not even that month. Wow. Uh, it, it It feels like longer. Every week I'm not on here is like a lifetime away. Oh, well, thank you, Johnny. It's we, the way for we us as well. Oh, so guys. tell us about this announcements issue. It's a big one. It is. It's big. They're all big. We do a couple of announcements issues here on the adult side. We do a couple on the kids' side. They are for the, the uninitiated who may be listening. Uh, we call them announcements. Uh, they are basically our season previews for, in this case, spring and summer books of 2018. So this is how the sausage gets made. In the early fall, we send out a message to hundreds and hundreds of publishers saying we're putting together our, our announcements. We want to know about the publisher, the, about the titles, excuse me, you're publishing in the spring and the summer. They send us information on 
many books. And from that, we create a giant database and we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of, of books. Those get distilled down eventually through a very convoluted process that we don't need to go into here because it's not very interesting, um, especially for those of us who suffer, <laughs> who suffer and through, it. through it. And I say we, I mean, you guys and other editors, I just sort of lurk in the, in the, the overlord's you know chamber and laugh at you. But all of the books that get submitted get looked at and uh, they get distilled down to what appears in the print magazine, which is uh, 15 categories that each have a top 10 list and a long list of 50-ish books that are also worth checking out. And that is our season preview. And it's not, uh, you know, these some of these are books that we've seen. Some of them are books we've already reviewed. Some we haven't seen yet. And we're making sort of gut calls on, you know, based on it's a big author the book's concept, whether, you know, it's going to be a very timely nonfiction book uh, or, or or fiction title for that matter, um, or sometimes how much support the publisher is going to give it uh, in a way that suggests that they're going to go all out to make it a big book. You know, our audience for this primarily is booksellers and librarians, uh, but of course also, you know, anybody who is a book, you know, lover would do themselves a great favor by checking this out to get sort of a roadmap for what's coming up in the spring. And you can go to publishersweekly.com slash spring2018 and see all 15 categories, top 10s, long list, the whole shebang. Great. So I'm putting this, that was good. That was good. I'm panting. I'm panting. It's warm in here, and that was a lot of talking. So looking at this season, what, what did you find? Well, you know, um, a lot a lot of stuff. You'll be shocked to hear. I mean, uh, again, we're talking about 750 books. There's, there's a lot of uh, sort of like little sub uh, many trends that bubbled up across the different categories. Uh, I think you guys are going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff you saw in your areas later right. on. Yeah. Uh, let me start off, I guess, talking about the fiction for spring, Yeah. which is always you know, a pretty exciting uh, list of books. We've got prize winners uh, on our list. We have big names. We have people with debuts you've never heard of. You know, it's a cliche, but it's true that there's something here for everybody. You know, I'm not going to go through everything here. I'm going to go through some of the stuff that we have in our top ten. And again, I encourage everybody to go and and check out the top 10, the long list for all these categories on the website. So let's start with a novel called The Female Persuasion by Meg Wolitzer. Everybody knows Meg Wolitzer. Yeah. Uh, it's a big book. It's going to come out in April. Riverhead is a publisher. And we actually just published our star review of it, uh, I think a week, last week, maybe the week before. Uh, and in a nutshell, the novel is about a, a, a young idealistic woman fresh out of college, and she gets a job working for one of her heroes, who is an icon of the women's movement. And the novel sort of charts how her early enthusiasm evolves as she gains a broader understanding of how the world works. Um, there's a lot of other stuff uh, packed in here. It's a really smart novel. There's like three or four plot threads that run through it, and they're all really well handled. Uh, it's great. You know, like I said, we gave it a star review, so, you know, definitely be on the lookout for that one. Kristen Hanna, whom you may remember as the gajillion-selling author of The Nightingale, that came out, what, a year? Two ago? Yeah. Uh, yeah, just over a year, I think. So she has a new novel. Uh, it's called The Great Alone. Uh, St. Martin's is the publisher, and it comes out in February, just around the corner. Another one we gave a star review to, and this is a really smartly done saga about uh, a down-on-their-luck family who moves from 1974 Seattle to the, the really like dark, frozen boonies of Alaska. And as it happens, surprisingly, it's a little bit different up there. <laughs> Things things are different. <laughs> who, who could have known? Uh, who knew? <laughs> Another book we gave a star review to uh, called Speak No Evil by Uzudenwa Iwiala, whom, again, you may know from 2005's Beast of No Nations. 
uh, also a Netflix series. This one's a little bit of a change of pace. That one, you know, it's about a, a child soldier in, in, a, in a West African civil war. Uh, this one is uh, starts out in D.C., and it's about an overachieving teenager's, you know, when his conservative Nigerian parents find out that he's gay, very bad things happen. His 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 father beats him, and he hauls him, you know, from D.C. back to Nigeria to, to get rid of the – the quote from the book is the evil demonic spirit within him. Wow. And, you know, that's not even the whole book. You know, it's like, so they go back to D.C., and things get even worse. It's a really, really devastating novel, um, and the writing and, and prose in it is, is, is really magical. And, you know, it's not a very traditionally written book at all. You know, right. the, the phrasings are smart. Uh, the sort of um, – the risks you take are really are, – are really bold and well done and it pays off in a, again a very crushing way on a lighter note there's a new novel from Otessa Mosfeg coming up in July it's called My Year of Rest and Relaxation right and that one's about a young woman who has a seemingly kind of cushy easy life in New York around the year 2000 and decides to go like on a year long extended hibernation to sort of you know hide from the realities of life with the help of a really terrible psychiatrist uh, and a bunch of drugs you know it's looking to be like a very like you know, darkly funny book. You know, her her previous novel uh, was a story collection, or sorry, her previous book, not her previous novel. I'm sorry, was a story collection, Homesick for Another World, which we gave a star review to. And uh, for for this book, the new one, we have a lot of high hopes. And the last one I'll talk about before uh, I can turn it over to you guys, or I've got a couple other gems in here. Oh, from, always happy that are outside that are outside of the fiction okay, realm. That know, sounds we're good. Go far afield, but yeah, uh, I wanted to talk about a novel called *The Mars Room* by uh, Rachel Kushner. Uh, her last novel, *The Flamethrowers*. Everybody loved that novel. Yep. It was all over yep. the place. It was great. Um, her new one, *Pubs in May*. It's set in, uh, in a California women's prison, and it follows the life, or I guess more appropriately, the life sentence of a woman named Romy Hall, uh, who you know shows up in prison and gets to know that the. the very rarefied societies and, and rules and regulations and stuff that happen uh, within the prison walls. Mm-hmm. Kushner is a great writer, and and this is a book I think people are going to be talking about when it hits, uh, which is in May. Okay, great. So I'll, I'll I'll lay off the fiction for now. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. What about you? Said you had a couple gems in in nonfiction. Or I have a couple. A couple. I'm going to talk about a couple eye? little trends. Couple okay. little, little mini trends. All right. I got two here. Buckle up. Here we go. Ready. Universal basic income. Do you know what that is? Yes. Yes. Basically, the idea is the government gives you money every month, no strings attached. There are two, three, at least at least three books on this coming up in, in the spring. It's a great idea. Money just shows up in your bank account yeah. every month or however it works. Who's going to say no? I don't know. I'm not. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a few books on that. There's, there's one book that, that's sort of a riff on that by Facebook co-founder, Chris Hughes, mm-hmm. he has a book called Fair Shot that treads similar lines, but you know, in in his in his version of this, it's not the government giving out money; it's the one percenters like himself uh, who would fund essentially a guaranteed income for working Americans. It's pretty amazing that a, a group of one percenters can fund a nation <laughs> of workers, and and how many would sign up for that? Right. Would you? Would you, Mark? I mean, you're as like, a one percenter you're, you're, or as a worker. You're, you're a two percenter right now. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? But I mean, that, that that's a theme that comes up across, right. uh, you know, in, in our politics and kind of current events category. You'll see that. And you know, the other thing, super super important here uh, for the Nordic lifestyle buffs out there. You know, you got Huga. Is that Which how you pronounce was, that? Do we know? Yeah. Huga. 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 Rose, one more time. Huga. More or less. More or less, out of out of and Denmark. We, yes, we remember. Yeah, exactly. The Swedish it? trend is lagom. 
Okay, right. Right? That's, right. Kind of, that's going on right now. Those yeah, are there's some cookbooks. I've seen some cookbooks on Lagome. Yeah. Okay. Just, just enough. Right. Right. And we have another one? Oh, yeah. We have one more. What from, is it? From Finland. From Finland. Finland. <laughs> the Finnish trend coming up. Probably going to pronounce this wrong. It's only four letters. Still going to get it wrong. Sisu? 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 How do you spell S-I-S-U. that? S-I-S-U. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to go with Sisu. But that sounds good. That's wow. The, the Finnish, Finnish one. have their own? Yeah. It's, it's, wow. it's, uh, it's uh, a, a, a sort of riff on, a, I think the translation is, uh, you know, quiet strength or something like that. That sounds very Finnish. Yeah. You know, yeah. there you have it. So, you know, if you want to be ahead of the curve on your Nordic lifestyle stuff, go to Finland. And uh, I'm sure uh, I'll be seeing cookbooks, uh, how to how to cook sisu. So, the Finnish way. <laughs> the Finnish way. <laughs> so, Rose, do you want to? Sure. Uh, I'm just going to touch a couple of highlights from the romance and erotica category. Uh, there are two different choose-your-own-adventure books, which is not something you tend to see in a category where the whole point of the genre is the happy ending. So you would think that the ending is a foregone conclusion, and the question is how you get there. But there's a, an interactive romance novel called My Lady's Choosing that uh, is a historical romance where you get to choose the romance, and it includes any number of heroes for the heroine to hook up with, as well as another heroine. So you can have any oh. kind of romance that you want while adventuring all around around the world in this sort of uh, sketched out Victorian era. Do and they all end happily? They do. Okay, good. They do, good. because that is, that is the key to romance, is yeah. the happy ending. And, uh, and then there's also Night Shift, which is a choose-your-own erotic adventure, which is a sex toy shop clerk choose-your-own-adventure story uh, where she's uh, working in this tacky little joint in a strip mall somewhere in, in middle America, um, and uh, all sorts of wild adventures can happen. And I love that these are coming out within a couple of months of each other, that this is clearly some somebody went, you know, what if we put choose-your-own-adventure together with these incredibly popular genres where it's not right. usually done? So I was just very charmed to see that uh, and to see that pop up. Yeah, I had a friend who worked in a sex toy shop a long time ago. Really? Actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good stories. Yeah, you get some I great bet. stories. <laughs> after, after we're done here. <laughs> and then uh, there are also a couple of uh, romances between royals and commoners. Everybody sort of knows right. the, the Roman holiday formula of the, the royal who's slumming around and commoner guys falls in love with a commoner and they have to figure their thing out. Um, and uh, all of this goes back to the Cinderella story, the idea of the prince who can pluck his princess from the ashes. But there are uh, a couple of innovative twists on the formula, including uh, a prince's twin sister who disguises herself as her brother um, when he's he dies of a drug overdose and they don't want anyone to know. Uh, and so she pretends to be him and a reporter covering the story falls in love with her. And uh, I, I just, I like watching what people do with formulas and what can be a very formulaic mm -hmm. genre and how they kind of upend them and, uh, and play around with them. Yeah. There's something about having limitations in ways that, uh, that helps create, that just kind of pushes, helps you push the envelope a little bit. Yes. And uh, Alyssa Cole, who's a past radio show guest, right. uh, is also launching a series with an entertaining romance between an African prince and his American fiance, who's totally forgotten that he exists. And so she keeps getting these emails saying, you are engaged to an African prince. And she's like, yeah, spam, delete, delete, delete. She <laughs> I, thinks, I get those emails all the time. She thinks it's <laughs> yeah. just another scam message, except in her case, it turns out to be true. 
so again, just playing around. Yeah. And, uh, and I love the sense of fun. It feels very appropriate for a spring, sort of trying new things, exciting, exciting new stuff. Um, and in science fiction, fantasy, and horror, there are also uh, some very well-known authors who are launching exciting new genres. Raymond E. Feist, who spent 30 years writing one of the formative epic fantasy trilogies of the 1990s and 1980s, all the way up through um, the mid-2000s, is starting a new series. And it's anyone's guess whether it's going to be uh, as much of a success as his Rift War books. But it's really remarkable that someone who really has basically been doing the same thing for decades is branching out. Uh, Nancy Springer, who is one of my favorite authors from the from the 90s, who's been doing a whole range of different things, including mystery books for kids and kind of gently fantastic fiction, is suddenly doing epic fantasy, which I would not have expected from her, uh, and a couple of other big names trying new things. Uh, Hanu Rajanyemi, who's a, a hard science fiction author, is doing an espionage tale set in the afterlife. Uh, Catherine Valenti, who always does new things uh, with every book, uh, is writing a book called Space Opera, which is Eurovision in space. Is all these warring alien civilizations made mm. peace through Galactivision, and Earth is a late contestant that uh, has to figure out how to participate in this unexpected world of uh, people playing guitar solos in outer space. So, I, again, very <laughs> inventive. Yeah. <laughs> David has, Bowie. Has I'm happens. tapping into David, David Bowie. I'm sure there's going to be a lot <laughs> yeah. of David Bowie references in there. It feels made for it. Yeah. So, uh, again, just people being very inventive, very creative, and uh, it, it feels like the year just passed has been a lot of looking back. We saw a lot of books that were dealing with... Um, particularly World War One and World War Two, It's been a very consistent theme, um, as well as a lot of historical fantasy. And now there's a lot of looking forward and innovation and trying something new and being bold and creative. I love it. It makes me very, very happy to see all of this. That sounds great. So I'm excited. Sounds great. Excellent. Um, just tapping a little bit into uh, memoirs and biographies. So recovery uh, from various addictions or from war trauma, and that's that's been a big and a big category for for a while. Each of those, um, we've got two that stand out this year: is uh, the recovering intoxication and its aftermath by Leslie Jameson, which we gave this book a star review. What she does is she talks about recovery and alcoholism in light of some of her favorite writers and how they dealt with the same thing. And we also have Eat the Apple by Matt Young, who's a uh, former Marine, and he talks about his life coming back from the Marines and trying to adjust back into society here. We also gave that a starred review. And then, of course, uh, we're going to have Trump-related books or recent politic books, Born Trump, Inside America's First Family by Emily Jane Fox, who has been writing about them for Vanity Fair for a while, uh, and writing about the children, what it's like to grow up Trump. And then James Comey is going to come out with a book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, in which he promises to detail, uh, to share the details of the last year or two or three of, of his time as the uh, CIA director. So, I'm sorry, FBI director. And um, we got Paul Simon, a uh, biography of Paul Simon coming out. But I want to turn to cookbooks really quick. The big thing, Southern cooking. 
all different kinds of Southern cooking. Mm. There's, and it's, it's also from a mash of Southern cooking, turnip greens and tortillas. A Mexican chef spices up the Southern kitchen. This is Eddie Hernandez, who uh, has a chef, who is a, is a chef at Taqueria del Sol in Atlanta and talks about growing up Mexican American, but also in how it blends with Southern food. So there's that. Lots of vegan stuff. There's always, the, this is a growing. Vegan. A lot of vegan. I remember seeing all the vegan stuff. In lots there. of vegan all over. And this one, a Lauren uh, Toyota. Vegan comfort classics, and this kind of puts the notion of vegan as healthy. You know, kind of turns it on its end, and and she's like, no, it doesn't have to be healthy. It could be fun. Let's make it fun. And this is coming up from Ted and Speed. Um, and of course, we got some big ones like Jada, Jada De Laurentiis. Um, they're pushing that book quite a bit, and uh, Clarkson Potter. And I think I'm going to leave it at that. Well, it's definitely looking to be a very exciting spring. Yeah, let's see what happens. So. Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your perspective of things. Oh, it's always a pleasure. My <laughs> office is right across the hall from here. <laughs> I generally find a way to close my door when you're recording, so you cannot find me. <laughs> We're going to find you. We're going to find you again. Yes. I failed this week. <laughs> we always found a pleasure. A way. We found you. Well, thank you, Johnny. It's always great to have you here. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're on vacation for the rest of December. When we come back, we'll have some terrific author interviews, plus lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, we'll have two archive shows for your listening pleasure. And you can also listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on Audiobook Radio. Radio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 